for the reading of God's Word, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is the Word of life for us this Christmas Eve. Genesis 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You may be seated. And Merry Christmas. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8, teach us. And only God's grace can save the wicked from God's destruction. Only God's grace can save the wicked from God's destruction. Now I'm guessing that that kind of sentence, that kind of idea, many of you would agree to. It's the kind of thing that people in churches say all the time, we are in need of God's grace and I can only be saved by grace. I wonder if you really believe that. Because if you believe that sentence, then you will understand that it offends this can-do spirit that is in the hearts of probably every human being. I doubt that you have ever celebrated a Christmas when the naughty list was an option for you. This famous ad now that's going around where little children are doing whatever it takes to get off the naughty list. I'm guessing that is how you've spent every Christmas. It's not an option for you to be categorized as naughty. And so you'll just straighten up whenever the elves are on the shelf. Whenever they are watching, you'll do whatever it takes to persuade whoever gives gifts that they should not give you coals. You do not deserve that. How does that kind of idea resonate with the message of Genesis 6? I wonder if you 
think that you have grown out of that kind of self-confidence that is demonstrated in children during Christmas? Have you grown out of the kind of self-confidence that you are able to avoid what you do not want? If you think that's not true of you, let me ask you this. What do you do? What happens to the faithfulness, your faithfulness, to floss your teeth whenever the dentist appointment is coming? Are you able to avoid the slap on the hand that the dentist always gives by just flossing your teeth a little more that week? When you hear only God's grace can save the wicked from God's destruction, are you ready to accept that truth? Are you ready to accept that apart from God being gracious to you, I mean you, if God is not gracious to me, I am not sometimes naughty. I am wicked. Can you say that? If God is not gracious to me, I deserve not a little discipline, not what the Catholics say, a few million years in purgatory. I don't deserve that. No, I deserve for God to destroy me. Do you believe the message of Genesis 6, 1 through 8? It is the darkest and most debated passage in Genesis. And it's our passage this morning. And we're going to focus on what is clear. And what is clear is that this passage is organized around what the demons see and what the Lord sees. You see that in verse 2? What the sons of God saw. And then on, in verse 5, what the Lord saw. That's how this passage is organized, and so that's how the sermon is organized. We see in verses 1 through 4, the demons saw good. The demons saw good. The title of that point, the demons saw good, tells you what I believe uh, about the identity of the sons of God. Now, this is the, perhaps the most debated part about our passage, and so if you'll allow me to be technical for just a few moments, I want to give you three options for how we understand these sons of God who saw the daughters of man as good in verses 1 through 4. The first option is that the sons of God are the men of Seth's line. So Seth is the godly son who replaced Abel uh, in, in Adam and Eve's family. And the, the idea there is that they are the ones who, in verse 2, marry the daughters of man, which in this case would be the daughters of Cain, the, the wicked and faithless line. And in many ways, this is the easiest of the options to believe, except that to say that the daughters of man now represent only the faithless, that, that, is no, that idea is nowhere found anywhere else that Man is now a reference only to the godless people. But even more than that, the second option, the sons of God, normally refers to angels. That makes it difficult to believe that the sons of God now are referring to humans. The sons of God, that term in Job 1.6 and then also in, in other passages in the scriptures, the sons of God refers to angels. 
Cooper, do you have Job 1, verse 6? The sons of God present themselves to the Lord, and it's clearly a reference to angels. Uh, Satan is among the sons of God and the angels who come before the Lord. The third option is the one that I um, accept, and that is that because Jesus says that the angels do not marry, are not given in marriage and do not marry others. And because of passages like Luke chapter 11 and verse 24, we have passages in the Gospels that show that demons crave human bodies. So that when demons possess humans, if they are cast out by Jesus, they are without rest until they find another body to possess. They crave human bodies. That kind of idea seems to be reflected in Genesis chapter 6, so that the sons of God, I think, in verses 1 through 4, refer to these demons who are looking at women and lusting after women, and then because of their lust for women, they overpower and in that way possess men to take these women as wives. That's what I've got for that little controversy. But even if we look beyond that controversial point and and understanding who exactly are the sons of God, what is very clear to us is what the sons of God did and what God Almighty thinks about what the sons of God did. Now, many years ago, my brother and I were having lunch at this restaurant in Kentucky, and and we went out to the parking lot and saw that there was an older lady whose car... um, was not starting, and so we are men, and so we're going to help her out, and, and we uh, use, we, we're men who don't have jumper cables, but she had jumper cables, and so we uh, asked to use her jumper cables, and we hooked up her car to ours, and then we turned it over, and then her jumper cables uh, lit on fire and blew up, and, and then we had to buy her new ones. Anyway, when I was uh, a few weeks ago, uh, praying by a park, uh, Normandy Park, I came upon Lindsay Miller, who uh, her car wouldn't start. And so um, when I saw that, I heard an echo. Back to my older days, or younger days, when I incinerated that lady's uh, jumper cables. And yet I knew that a member of our church needs help, and so I put on a brave face. But secretly, I was thinking, this ain't going to go well. I was comforted by the fact that I had now jumper cables, and I uh, had step-by-step directions on how to connect these jumper cables to the batteries in order to jump her car. Even more than that, I had the comfort of David Miller, uh, his, uh, her husband, on the phone, walking me through everything. And sure enough, the the car turned over, and then I got into my car, and I turned it on, and my air conditioning that I had spent a couple weeks earlier, $1,000 to fix, now was a heater. And it was 100 degrees outside because it was October in Texas. And so 100 degrees blowing, in, or uh, hot air blowing in my face when it should be cold air was not good. This ain't going to 
turn out well uh, was a prediction that turned out true. Listen, my fuse box in under my hood looks just like a battery. So if you're judging me about how silly I am, shame on you. It looks just like the battery, the fuse box did. And so after another man came to help me, Kenny, turn, uh, fix the fuse, and then now I have cold air again. When we read verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters were good. The word attractive is, is actually hiding from us an echo from Genesis 3. It's the word good. When the sons of God saw the daughters of man were good and then took them. God is meaning for us to hear that that distant echo, the repeating of Genesis chapter 3. And we're supposed to hear, saw, good, and take the way that I responded when seeing a dead battery. We're supposed to hear, saw, good, take, and conclude, this ain't going to end well. Genesis 3, verse 6. Look there. Eve is under the influence of a demon. And it says she saw the forbidden fruit was good. And then she took it. What the demons take is not good. They see it as good. But the fact is, what the demons take is not good. Just look at the language then of verse 4. These demonic unions produce literally Nephilim or fallen ones. That's what Nephilim means. Fallen ones. It's translated as giants elsewhere. It's, we're told they are mighty men. Men of name. Men of name. And you might hear that. And you might think, who doesn't want big, strong babies? What do we pray for whenever someone is pregnant and they're delivering? Big, strong babies who eat well and sleep well. Who would want to run? Who would want a weakling? Seth would. Remember that? In Genesis chapter 4, we were told that the difference between the faithful line of God and the faithless line of Cain is that, the, that, that Cain had men of renown, men of name. And then we're told that these children that come to the, Neph- or, or the Nephilim, the children who come from this union of demons, possessing humans, and then taking whatever women they wanted, they had men of name. We're to remember what happened in Genesis 4 and how the godly came from Seth, who had a child who was not strong, but his name Enosh means weak. Friends, we live in a world, Graham is part of this world, where ends justify means. Where ends justify means. 
where we want what's good. We have an idea in our mind what is good to us, and then we take it. It doesn't matter what it costs us. It doesn't matter what we have to do. We want fame. We want strength. We want fortune. We live in a world of moral self-determination where we determine for ourselves what we think is good and what we think is evil. Good and evil in Genesis 6 is good and evil in our world. It's in the eyes of the beholder. You think it's good? You see it as good? Take it. Then we have verse 3. And in verse 3, we're reminded, this world is God's world. This world belongs to God. And in reality, God alone sets the limits of what is good. And when His limits are crossed, whenever we take what God forbids, and if you look in Jude verse 6, you will see, As Jude is talking about this event in Genesis chapter 6, Jude says that the angels left their proper place. They crossed God's line when they did this. And humanity crossed God's line as well. And whenever God's limits are crossed, there are consequences. Now, one other thing we should recognize when we come to this passage is that when Adam and Eve, back in Genesis 3, willingly submitted their lives to Satan. It changed everything about our relationship with demons. For us, they willingly submitted to Satan so that they invited demonic influence over all of us. See that at play in Genesis chapter 6. But also see that even though demons influence humans to take what God forbids, notice who God punishes. When we try to make a name for ourselves, and we're not listening to the limits of God and what He calls good and what He calls evil, even though we're influenced by demons, we are still responsible for what we do. The devil made me do it, never tells the full story, and it will be no defense before God. God, notice in verse 3, sets limits for how long He will allow us to overstep His limits. He sets limits for how long He will endure us overstepping His limits. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That could mean that now lifespans will be shorted to at most 120 years. And yet what we see as it goes on in Genesis that some lived beyond that. And so I think it's probably more likely that what He's communicating in verse 3 is that in 120 years, a flood's going to come and it's going to destroy all these people. Only God's grace can save the wicked from God's destruction. In verses 5 through 8, whereas the demons saw good, notice in verses 5 through 8, the Lord saw evil. The Lord saw evil. 
In verses 5 and 6, we see God's regret. God's regret over the sinfulness of man. Look in verse 5. The Lord saw. And here again, we have an echo. We have an echo back to Genesis 1 at what God saw then versus what He sees now. Back in chapter 1, the Lord saw good. He saw His seas and lights and creatures and finally God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good now we are told how far away the world of Genesis 6 is from Genesis 1 when the Lord sees his humanity the Lord sees Humans who are made in His image. Humans who have the purpose of filling His world with God's goodness. And and what the Lord sees is evil. Man has filled the earth with, it says in verse 5, wicked actions that flow out of evil hearts. And you have to take in how tragic this is. The world that God made good, man made evil evil. The Lord saw sin spread like yeast, working itself into the deepest recesses, notice, of every human. God says wickedness is great. How great, God, is the wickedness of man. He uses words like every, only, and continually. Every, only, and continually. God sees not just what demons did, not just what humans did. Friends, take note. In verses 1 and 2, we see what they did. But God saw more in verse 5 and verse 6. He sees the thoughts of our hearts. And what He says is every one of them Every one of the thoughts and every one of the humans is intended only for evil all the time. Every one of the thoughts that God saw in every one of the humans was intended only for evil all the time. The word intention is the word that speaks of the imagination of an artist. The imagination of an artist, a creative person, a potter, who forms the clay to match exactly the design that he came up with in his mind. That's what kind of actions the people are doing. Verse 5, all human actions are formed according to the completely evil designs of their hearts. This is the word of the Lord. And the scariest thing is that they were convinced that what they were doing was good. They were completely convinced that everything they were doing was good. Everyone thinks deep down that they are good. You just, even if you're a Christian and you believe passages like this, you just watch the next someone accuses you of something. How you will defend yourself that they are totally wrong, even when they're right. 
Verse 6. Human goodness grieves the Lord. The goodness of humanity. Our efforts to be good and to do good. Notice in verse 6. Our goodness is grievous to the Lord. So that the Lord sees our hearts cherishing evil and his heart grieves. Here's another echo in our passage. The word grief in verse 6 is also the same word as sorrow or sorry in verse 7. It is also the same word as pain in Genesis chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. This grief that God experiences is the same as the pain that we experience, that God said we must experience in order to feel the stinging sorrow from sin. And that teaches us something really important. Verse 6 is telling us that when when God promised that the human heart is going to feel the stinging sorrow from sin, and then he says that's what he feels in verse 6, he's telling us that we're not the only ones who feel the sting of sin. How great is God's concern for your life and what it does and what he sees. Now, before we move on to verses 7 and 8, we need to understand the Lord's regret and really not misunderstand the Lord's regret. There are passages like 1 Samuel 15 that warn us that we can misunderstand Genesis chapter 6 when we see that the Lord regrets. We have 1 Samuel 15. It says that the Lord does not regret in the way that man regrets. The Lord's regret in Genesis chapter 6 is less volatile than man's regret. And it's more horrible than man's regret. What I mean is when, when we regret something and we use that language of how a man regrets something, we regret something because we were not expecting it. The Lord does not grieve in that way. He does not regret in that way. He grieves as one who is not surprised in any way and therefore his anger is measured. It's not a lashing out kind of anger. It is a good and righteous anger. And that's what we see in verse 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8, we see God's response to his regret over the sinfulness of man. And really there are two parts. First part is in verse 7. God's response is that he will end sinners and cocker spaniels. Goodness. Verse 7, what happened to the cocker spaniels? All of God's creatures are going to be ended by God. Why is that? Well, he's using the language of Genesis chapter 1 that takes us back to this role of all humanity to rule over all creation. And we just understand this principle that if the king falls, all in the kingdom have to suffer. And so humans fail to reflect the goodness of God. And therefore, all the creatures will suffer the penalty. Verse 7 says that God regrets making man because man rejected the very purpose we were made for. Seeing evil as good. And then taking what God forbids always leads to judgment. 
This is the most sober warning that I, I take home from this passage. I've got to be careful what I think is good. Because if I think it's good, I'm going to reach out to take it. And seeing evil as good because God saw something was evil and it's the same thing that the humans and the demons thought was good. Seeing evil as good and then taking what God forbids always leads to judgment because those are always denials of God and that results in forfeiting life. If you deny the Creator, you are forfeiting your life. And the problem is we can't even do good because we can't see good. And we take whatever we think is good. And then God says in verse 7, God says, I will blot out all creatures. That's cleansing language. It's like we would bleach stains out of our clothes. God promises through the flood to come to hold his world like a dish and then wipe all of the wickedness out of the world. And then turn the dish over to dry so that no sinner remains to make him sorry anymore. That's part one of God's response. And then we have verse 8. The second part of God's response is the one that should surprise you. God will give grace. The word but in verse 8 is a word you should not have seen coming. It's a word that if you love the Lord and His holiness, you would never see coming. It's, it's like the, the but in Ephesians 2 that no one saw coming. We were, Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath like all of humanity deserving the wrath of God for our sins and our faithfulness to Satan. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. You don't expect that but to come. But, in verse 8, signals that no one saw this phrase coming, that God saw Noah. And Noah found favor in the same sight of the same God. We don't see favor being matched up to any man in the Genesis 6 world. It would be like you finding a briefcase stuffed with stacks of hundreds in a dumpster. It would be like you all of a sudden showing up at the mechanic in Graham and finding me in uniform. What is that doing there? That is, that is the kind of thing that we should be feeling when we see the word but in this passage. What is that? Found favor doing there in the Lord's sight. How can in that Lord's sight anyone find favor? Now we're going to learn more about Noah in the passage next time. But you should not understand verse 8 thinking that Noah was favorable. He is not favorable. We're not able to 
find reasons to favor him. Noah is a sinner who lives in verse 5. That's who Noah is. He found favor the way that we might find a fortune, and we had no right to find that fortune. In fact, favor is the word for grace in verse 8. Noah found acceptance and approval from God as a gift. He had demerited. It's not that he just had not merited, earned it. He demerited it. He earned the opposite of this kind of acceptance and approval. Only God's grace can save the wicked from God's destruction. This is the message of Genesis 6, 1 through 8. Only God's grace can save the wicked. What do you think salvation is? It's not finding a way to survive. It's being saved. And the wicked need to be saved from God's destruction. And our only hope is that that God might be gracious. Here is our final echo. The Lord's sorrow in verse 7 sounds like the name Noah. It's a word that sounds like the name Noah. And it's actually the same Word, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 29, that word comfort. Whenever Noah's father was living around in this world filled with death and decay and not blessing, and Noah's father names him Noah in hopes that he might bring comfort to a world that is filled with death. And, and in chapter 6, verse 8, God is making Noah's name True. In effect, what God is saying is that I will graciously give the comfort that I'm looking for in my sorrow. And that all of my people will be looking for from sin's sting by giving grace to Noah. By sparing this one and his family from destruction. This is a promise in verse 8 that God will graciously comfort himself and his people from sin's sting by giving grace. Friends, do not misunderstand that the fullness of God's gracious comfort from sin's sting is found in Noah. Because what we're going to see as we go on in Genesis is that Noah's sins then stain this new world that is made through the flood. We need a greater favor than we see in verse 8. We need more grace than we find in verse 8. Let me give you one really final echo. One that comes to us at Christmas. We hear an echo of Genesis 6, verse 8, in the words about a virgin. Mary found favor with God. With the Christmas child, we see the fulfillment of all the grace that we could Hope for in verse 8 and more. When the Christmas child grew up, God saw Jesus. God saw him. All of his thoughts, all of his actions, God saw the totality and the quality of Jesus' heart, and he said, This is my beloved son. 
With him I am well pleased. He is unlike any other child. In fact, this Son of God, the Lord Jesus, is the opposite of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. This Son of God, the Lord Jesus, did not see good. He did not see good and then take a body in order to sin like the sons of God did. They saw their version of good, which was evil, and then they took bodies to sin against God. The one Son of God saw evil, and then He took a body in the virgin's womb so that He might take the sting of sin on the cross. And then after Jesus took God's destroying wrath on behalf of the wicked, He was still found pleasing in the sight of his father. And so God raised him from the dead. Genesis 6 says that we covet what does not belong to us because we're conceited. We covet what does not belong to us because we're conceited. We want what God has not given to us because He is not very important to us. Sin makes us the center of our worlds. Beloved, Genesis 6 is teaching us true about the world today. Satan has performed LASIK surgery on the eyes of every heart in the world. He makes us see what He wants us to see, which is the exact opposite of what God sees. In His world, evil is good and good is evil. And our coveting what is evil leads to our condemnation. Can you imagine a more hurtful sentence for a child to hear from their parent? I wish you were never born. God is totally righteous. And he says that in verse 7. You see that? I wish they were never born. You cannot feel how great is God's grace until you feel the gravity of God's regret. You will never feel the gift of Christmas the greatness of God's grace until you feel the weight of God's regret. I wish they were never born. Our salvation from sin to righteousness required nothing less than the death of a righteous substitute. So God took a body. It is ironic. You could say it's insane. As insane as calling evil good. It is ironic. That during the season that we celebrate God's humility. Perhaps in this season more than ever. Our conceit is on display for everyone to see. 
Today and tomorrow, the world is going to fill this holiday with self. And you and I are going to have opportunities today and tomorrow to be disappointed. To be hurt. Surely to be happy if others make enough of us. gush over the things we do for them, what we make for them, what we bought for them. Show us how worthy we are of their worship by what they spend on us. We will have opportunities for that. And Genesis 6 can heal our hearts that on Christmas, God's grace overcame God's grief. God's grace overcame God's grief in regretting that we were ever born and making a son be born. Christ was compassionate not to wipe out conceited you and conceited me. He gave the body that he took for you and for me who had no right to find How can we find favor from God? Now that's a reason to feast. That is a reason to rejoice. Only God's grace can save the wicked from destruction. And God is gracious to us in Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It so clearly teaches us that there is not one unclean thing that will enter into your presence in heaven. We cannot get on your nice list by doing a few good deeds. And yet, God, we thank you for Genesis chapter 6 for reminding us that Noah was not given a boat for the flood because of his righteousness. Noah was saved in spite of his wickedness. And we pray, God, that all who are here would find favor, would find what they do not expect and have not earned. They would find favor in the gift of turning from sin and trusting in Christ. And we pray that we would rejoice in Him and truly celebrate this day and every in the one who was born to die. And we ask this in His name. Amen.